This is attorney Andy Markintel and attorney Mark J. Victor. We are the attorneys for freedom, and you, my friends, are listening to the Peace Radicals podcast. How's it going, Mark? It's going great, man. We had a, a fun show when you weren't here over the weekend. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Had Dr. Michael Edelstein in. We had a nice time. He talked about his, what I'd call, philosophy of psychology. R-E-B-T is what he talks about. And for people who didn't see that show of the Peace Radicals, definitely check it out. He's an awesome guy. He's the leader of of the Live and Let Live chapter up in Northern California. True believer, understands Live and Let Live. He's a, a high-power guy. He's written a bunch of books. He's a great communicator. And, yeah, he, he taught me quite a bit. I, I really appreciated hanging out with the guy. So I it was awesome. Wait. Yeah, awesome I can't wait to watch the conversation. I, I've only missed a couple of episodes because I was either out of town or doing something else. But uh, I always enjoy watching the ones that I'm not at because yeah. I'm like, oh, this will be exciting, you know. Whenever, like, the episodes come on and I've been on, I'm like, I know what was said and everything. So. I look forward to watching that with uh, with all the other listeners. So, uh, Mark, why don't you just start out by laying out what this whole 3L philosophy is about? Yeah, yeah. Live and let live is really, it's a philosophy. It's a way of life. If you like the phrase live and let live, you're going to love the live and let live movement. If you're cranky about how things are going in the world... Um, look, at, on, on the 30,000-foot view, okay, we're moving in the right direction on lots of things. But at the lower level, in the short term, yeah, we got issues. If you're in the United States, you're probably cranky with the R's, cranky with the D's, whether you're an R or a D. And that's great because it's the perfect time to start a new movement. And that's what Live and Let Live is about. And so we break down the Live and Let Live philosophy into two principles, really. There's the Live and Let Live legal principle. And then there's the Live and Let let live moral principle. Why do we do this? Well, because legal rules are different than moral rules. They're different in one very, very important way. If you break a legal rule, somebody's going to do something to you. A legal rule, for example, is a rule against murder. If you murder somebody, you get a scrupulously fair trial. But if it turns out you actually violated that rule, okay, I'm not going to say anything's wrong with doing something to that person. A formal consequence. Formal consequence, right, a formal consequence. So if you break a moral rule, well, uh, you may lose friends. People might not want to do business with you or something like that. But there's no formal consequence. So those are two very important differences between varieties of rules. And what we say in the Live and Let Live movement is that the legal principle ought to could be summarized by the simple short phrase, don't be an aggressor. Okay, so what's an aggressor? Well, an aggressor is somebody who initiates force against another person or their property or fraud or coercion or does anything that creates a substantial risk of harm to another person or their property. Very importantly and proudly, by the way, the Live and Let Live movement, we don't care about the color of your skin or where you're born or what your nationality is or what language you speak. We think all people in this sense, are completely equal. Nobody gets an exemption from having to comply with the live and let live legal principle. We're we're post-racial here. Whether you're rich or poor, everybody has to comply with the live and let live legal principle, even if they form a little group. I know sometimes people get confused about groups. They think, well, because you formed a group, the group should have some power or authority that the individuals who formed the group don't have. So no, a small group doesn't get to violate the principle, nor does a big group, nor does a corporation, nor does a government. Yeah, even the government. Why would we want the government to initiate force or get involved in fraud or coercion or do anything that puts us at a substantial risk of harm? 
So that's the legal principle that applies to everyone, all groups, everywhere, period. That's what we want to do. We want to align the legal rules of the world around the don't be an aggressor principle. The moral principle, okay, this one, there's many ways to say it, but we like to say in the live and let live movement, look, how about you just be a good human? Work to be the best version of yourself. What does this mean? Well, we have aspirational values that you're absolutely free to completely ignore if you want. We respect your right to ignore them so long as you don't violate the legal principle. You are the iron-fisted dictator of your body, property, money, and time. But we're trying to inspire people to act in certain ways. Open-mindedness, that's an important aspirational value. Stay open-minded. Be subject to the influence of other people. How about legal tolerance? Just tolerate. You don't have to agree with how other people live their lives. You might hate how they live their lives, but you should tolerate other people if they're not violating the legal principle. Civility is important. We should be able to disagree in an agreeable way. Also, voluntary kindness. Yeah, kindness is important, but not forced kindness. I recognize there are all kinds of charitable causes out there in the world. But if you force people to get involved in those and fund those, this violates the legal principle. But that doesn't end the analysis. We want to encourage people to solve real problems that we have in the moral realm. And also a commitment to justice and truth and facts. Why do we care about this stuff? Well, because what we want to do in this space is to optimize human happiness while decreasing human suffering. So Live and Let Live hasn't kicked off yet. It kicks off in March of 2023, but we already have chapters all over the world in lots of different places. Africa's got about 10 different chapters in 10 different countries now, many different chapters in Europe. We have chapters in Canada. There's a chapter in Australia, and uh, I would love to have a chapter in Russia. How can we make that happen? I don't know. We got a pretty explosive guest today that might be up to that task. Um, But, you know, just kind of closing thoughts on that. I think a really eloquent way to sum up what this movement is all about is to put it like this. Look, we all want to live our lives free. We all want to live our lives in freedom and peace. Well, there's a cost of admission to that. There is is a cost of admission. The only way, the only way you're going to be able to live your life free is you have to allow others to live their life free too. That's the price. That's the price you got to pay. If you can't, if you're one of these people who just can't stand that other people live differently than you and you want to force your views on them, you're not willing to pay the cost of a free world. Exactly. Sorry, you're not entitled to it. You got to put up with other people being the iron-fisted dictators of their body, property, money, and time, and using that stuff in ways you think are immoral, unhealthy, unwise, unwarranted. That's called the big boys and girls of the freedom movement. So That's great right. point, Andy. All right. So uh, I can't wait for this guest, man. You've told me I'm really going to enjoy this guy. You met him in Colombia while you were speaking at, was it Freedom Fest down there? No, no, no. This was the Liberty International World Conference, and um, it, it was well attended. There were people from all over the world, and I went up there, and I gave my pitch for Live and Let Live, and this Russian guy got up there uh, named Mikhail. And, uh, man, he was an eloquent speaker. But the guy started out with, you know, Mark gave you this speech on Live and Let Live. But then he says, or what? What are you going to do if they don't let you live and let live? And I remember Dr. Rick Fisher turned to me and said, hey, Mark, this guy's the real deal. This guy's a revolutionary. He wants freedom. So, of course, I gravitated to this guy. We spent endless hours into the wee hours of the morning sitting there and just talking hardcore 
libertarian philosophy. Love it. Let's get him in on the conversation. Mikhail, how you doing today, man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. Hi, Andy. Hi, Mark. Uh, good to see you again. All right. Why don't you start by just introducing yourself to our listeners? All right. So um, I'm a Russian libertarian, probably the most uh, notorious uh, Russian libertarian. I organize some of the biggest rallies in the modern history of Russia in the center of Moscow uh, and across Russia. If you Google my name, you can find pictures of uh, rallies in defense of uh, uh, Telegram in Moscow in Sakharova Square. It was attended by some 40,000 people. You can uh, Google a rally in defense of free elections. It was attended by some 50,000 people, uh, some smaller minor rallies of 20 to 30,000 people. I organized as well in the past couple of years. I rallied Russia all across Russia from Kaliningrad uh, to Yuzhno-Sakhalin. So that's the far most, uh, that's the far east region of Russia uh, with lectures. I've read lectures in over 77 cities in Russia, uh, all of them very well attended. My biggest lecture in Moscow was attended by over 1,000 people. Uh, the small ones were attended by 100, around 100, but those were in a smaller city. So um, we have a very, like every time I talk about libertarian movement in, in Russia, people act surprised, like, hey, there are libertarians in Russians, but the, in Russia. But the truth is that the Russian Libertarian Party uh, is probably the biggest libertarian party in all Europe and mm. the most successful one at that. Uh, but unfortunately, things took turn for the worst this year after uh, some serious political crackdown on Russian opposition, which were we were the prominent part of. And uh, a lot of my colleagues, and including myself, we had to flee Russia uh, to avoid uh, incarceration, to, uh, to avoid jail time. And actually, and actually a close friend of mine, Lev Maryasov, is in jail right now under made up, uh, under made up pretext of uh, organizing a legal rally and blocking the road. Uh, and he's been in jail for over five months now. So the things are really difficult in Russia now, much worse than they used to be just a couple of years ago. Uh, but we had a lot of success in that time. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine it's it's dangerous thinking over there to espouse these types of ideas. What's the current state of, of Russia? And so Putin has kind of control over everything. And what, what does he do in terms of opposition does he does he quash out all opposition what's going on over there yeah. right now so uh, basically as i mentioned things took a uh, turn to the worst in the last year. And you've probably heard uh, the case of Alexei Navalny. He's uh, been like the most prominent Russian oppositionist uh, in the last 10 years. Uh, and uh, there was attempt at his assassination. He was uh, uh, poisoned with uh, this uh, um, war grade poison called Novichok and he miraculously survived and he found out who his assassins were and he made this investigation. And after he tried to return to Russia in January of 2000, 2021, basically there was this major crackdown on all kind of dissenting voices, including libertarians. Basically, there is no uh, opposition. <coughs> Sorry. Basically, there is no opposition left that is uh, uh, capable of doing anything because too many people were forced into exile, too many people were forced in jail. And I mean, like, uh, uh, at least like 10 of my close friends are in uh, jail right now. And over, uh, over 50 people that I know personally know that I've personally worked with are in exile right now. So things are really uh, difficult uh, today and they are getting worse. Unfortunately, every day things are getting worse in Russia. What are they jailed for? What's the official charge? Again, those are cooked up charges. So my friend Gleb Mariasov, who is a libertarian, uh, he's uh, uh, been charged with organizing an illegal political rally, and that warranted him over wow. 10 months in jail. Wow. So An illegal political rally. Wow. Yeah. 
And what makes it illegal that they're not given the power? Well, <laughs> basically, uh, in the last 10 years, they uh, amended the laws that government uh, and, and government assumed power to sanction a political rally. So without a government sanction, you can't have a rally, which is a nonsense, because if you want to have a, a rally again, against government politics, you know, you're never going to receive the sanctions. So basically all the dissenting rallies, all the dissenting political uh, rallies were outlawed effectively, but only recently people uh, were, um, but only recently it, people were started to be put in jail for trying to organize them. Before it was the fees, uh, it was sanctions, they were, um, uh, they would charge money, you know, for violating the law, but now uh, it's the jail time. Oh. So what's your plan? Do you have a strategy? Do you abandon ship on Russia and go elsewhere in the world? Do you Absolutely try to... not. No, I didn't abandon Russia. It's just there are certain things that you can't do uh, in Russia while staying in Russia. So what I'm trying to do now, I just uh, launched my own news outlet. Uh, it's called svtv.org. It's the first uh, libertarian newspaper, uh, the first news outlet in Russian. Uh, that is uh, uh, that is a libertarian. So uh, I'm going to work with media. Um, I have a YouTube channel which I uh, which I uh, update uh, several times a week. I have my own show uh, in Russian, unfortunately, but I also have some podcasts in English. So if you're interested, I had a, a marvelous talk with Hans Hermann Hoppe uh, and okay. a lecture. It was the biggest libertarian lecture uh, read by a libertarian philosophy in the whole world. And Mark uh, actually saw uh, pictures and videos of it. Uh, in Colombia, I demonstrated it was attended by almost 2,000 people. Uh, it was just stunning. It was like a, a rock concert. And check it out. The record is available on my YouTube channel in English. I also help, had people from Cato Institute on my show. I talked to uh, Peter Guttler. Uh, I talked to Lawrence Reed of uh, Fee Institute. Uh, so a lot of interesting people uh, from the West as well. And uh, um, I, I made podcasts with them in English, but most of it in Russian, of course. Gotcha. So you're still aimed, your efforts are still aimed at bringing libertarianism and freedom philosophies to Russia, just kind of doing it from the outside. So what's what's the strategy here? How does how does one effect change from the outside like that? Well, first, you've got to spread ideas because there was no libertarian movement in the Soviet Union, obviously, and the uh, um, Libertarian Party of Russia is just over 10 years old. So the ideas are fairly fresh and people still have this uh, caricature of what we are, you know, um, drawn by government propaganda. <laughs> drawn by government propaganda uh, and the leftist media. So right now we're at the phase of spreading the ideas. I was very successful at it. As I mentioned that I've read lectures all over Russia and they were hugely successful. Um, uh, so that's the main goal right now. We also try to talk politically, and that's the point of disagreement that we had with Mark in Colombia, because uh, we can talk about morals all we want, but it's not enough to be moral or to be a good person, you know, to pro protect our values. So I've been also working in uh, sort of uh, trying to explain to people how to get where we want to get politically, because you have to think politically. It's not enough to say, you know, you're a bad person if you're not a, if you're not adhering to non-aggression principle or let a live and let live principle. You have to uh, think politically to get to the point where those values are protected. And that's a separate question from a uh, theoretical question of morals and ethics, because you can, we, I, I think that a libertarian philosophy developed that the field of morality fairly well in the past 50 years. What I think we're lacking of is the uh, political approach, you know, um, sort of means of getting 
where we want to be politically. And that's uh, that's my biggest point of uh, of interest right now. Okay, well, let's talk about that. How how do you get where you want to be politically? What have we been doing? What has well, the freedom movement been lacking? Well, uh, first of all, I think that libertarian ideas uh, in its core are revolutionary, but they haven't been developed as such. Uh, and to, to, to make them uh, and to move them from this moral principle to a revolutionary idea, you have to identify the enemy and you have to talk about the enemy. That's the necessary part, because if everyone is a friend, you know, you can't uh, possibly effectively defend your interests. So you have to identify the enemy. And it's not just the government. Uh, it's also uh it's also the uh, the groups of people or organizations who are determined to propagate this the status to status quo, uh, so to speak. Uh, so you have to identify the enemy. You have to identify why your enemies are winning. So uh, another quote that like you know Ben Shapiro, right? Yes. I think everyone uh, in the in the Western world knows uh, Ben Shapiro. So he has this quote that facts don't care about your feelings, and I feel that's the mistake that the right to libertarians and the libertarians in general have been making in the past years. Because yeah, sure, facts don't care about the feelings, but you know what? Feelings don't care about your facts either. And that's the political reality. It uh, may sound horrible, you know, to, to, to philosophers, you know, it may sound wrong, but that's the political reality. So you have to work with feelings as much as you work with facts, because otherwise you're going to lose. And that's the reason why libertarians have been on the losing side in the past 10, 20 years, because we've been concentrating too much on facts and we were neglecting the feelings. Mm. So you have to touch people's hearts. You have to address issues that people feel strongly about, not just, you know, talk about morals and ethics and being a good person, but also talking about the things that uh, matter to people, not questioning why they matter, but just addressing them in a libertarian way. So libertarianism, uh, I think the best way to use libertarian principles is like a prism, you know, uh, to use it to amplify an issue that is already relevant in the society and to explain it uh, and to try to fix it or explain how it can be fixed through libertarian ideas. And that's uh, been uh, proven to me, it's been proven um, effective in Russia. And again, the reason why I'm in ex exile and why libertarians are in exile right now out of Russia is because we've been effective. Basically, anyone who reaches any kind of political success in Russia are facing consequences right now. So anyone who matters uh, in uh, in Russian politics are facing serious difficulties today. But um, this, this method is effective. The other thing is populism. I think this is the word that uh, is getting a bad rap uh, for obvious reasons, but you gotta be populist. And populist doesn't mean not having principles. It means um, it means conveying your message in a certain way, in an effective way. And you got to learn from populists to talk to the people, to uh, not to be condescending to them, to be understanding uh, of their issues. And as I mentioned, to use libertarianism, libertarianism as a prism uh, to, to solve those issues that are already there, not to invent, you know, like the worst thing libertarians do, and it just drives me mad, is they uh, invent this... Uh, um, uh, impossible situation, you know, it's a hypothetical situation, you know, can, uh, can uh, people, you know, uh, uh, I don't know, sell, I just, again, even I'm, I'm uncomfortable even discussing, the, discussing those ideas because I think they're harmful, but uh, invent this uh, impossible situation where, you know, if the house is uh, surrounded by a road, you know, can, uh, can an owner of the road block the exit from the house, you know, things like that, those things 
uh, while hypothetically possible, practically impossible mm -hmm. or improbable, because that's not how politics work, uh, because politics is a market. And on the market, there are many, many things that are possible that are very improbable. Uh, like, for example, it, is it possible to imagine that all the uh, shoe companies are going to conspire uh, to make shoes that fit only the left leg? Sure, there's nothing in libertarianism that says that it cannot happen, but it will not happen because that's not how market works, because uh, market forces prevent companies from conspiring in that way. And I feel like a lot of questions that libertarians just love to discuss are in this realm of uh, possible but improbable, which is very harmful. So uh, what I'm suggesting is that you have to concentrate on the probable, you have to explain the political side of philosophy, and you got to distance uh, a pure philosophy from political implementation, because philosophy is like a guiding star, you know, it shows you a destination, but just knowing, um, but agreeing uh, on destination is not enough. You got to ag agree on, uh, on means of getting there. And that's actually a more, uh, I think that's the more important part, uh, because uh, otherwise, you know, like the communists, for example, the communists, they declare certain values, but the means they use, they never get there to the point of reaching communism. That's hence why you always uh, hear this, uh, uh, this nonsense that, you know, real communism never been tried. Why it's never been tried? Because, uh, because you know, communism is this pure utopia, but the means that they're uh, using to get there will never get them to this utopia because of the market laws, because of the way people are, because of the um, human factor. It always gets them in the opposite direction. So I think uh, libertarians, should, libertarians should not commit the similar mistake. Uh, we should treat ideology as a guiding star, but we should think politically, uh, uh, politically in terms how to move society towards that ideal instead of uh, implementing uh, ideals literally, which uh, will actually get us in the opposite direction. I hope that makes sense. It was a complicated thought, but I hope I conveyed it. It makes perfect sense, and we completely agree with you. We yeah, think I, I that didn't the, hear a word I disagree yeah, with. That we, we think that the freedom crowd have been woefully ineffective in communicating this message, and it's because they get bogged down in irrelevancies and things that don't touch people where they live. They don't touch them in the heart. They don't touch things that they actually care about. They don't look towards pragmatism, and they've been horrendously ineffective as a result. And that is exactly what the Live and Let Live movement is all about. What, what, is your, what is your perception of what it is I disagree with about what you just said? Well, I, I don't think you disagree with what I just said. I think that the point of disagreement that we actually had in Colombia uh, was uh, concerning the nature of the non-aggression principle. You believe it's uh, uh, it's rooted in natural law, and I think natural law is what got classical liberals uh, in the mess that we are in right now. You know, that's what uh, uh, that's what corrupted classical liberalism into the state of liberalism that we see today. Uh, I uh, think uh, that I believe strongly that contractual nature of non-aggression principle is a much sounder 
foundation for uh, libertarian success. And it has its own political uh, consequences that are very relevant, uh, but it's a truly theoretical disagreement, of course. Yeah, be- before Andy gets all over me for, for citing natural law, because I know he doesn't, he's not a big fan either. To be fair about it, you know, the live and let live movement avoids this entire question and says, look, we don't care how you get to the principle, whether it's natural law or contractarian principles or the Lord told you or, or you flip the coin or however you get there, we don't care. I recognize that there are serious problems with the natural law approach. I also think there are serious problems with the social contract approach. Like, for example, not everybody agrees. And like, for example, what the heck is part of the contract, right? Because a lot of the socialists, this this is the centerpiece of their argument. They say, look, Mark, when you choose to live in a community, you've sort of agreed to this implied contract. And, uh, you know, Mikhail might tacit think, consent, tacit consent. Mikhail might say, well, what's included in the contract is the uh, live and let live principle. But and he, he might be right about that. But we think socialized health care and, and force taking care of your neighbor and all these other various projects that we want to do. They're also part of the social contract. And so I think there's problems with each of these approaches. And I agree with you. Uh, these are fun discussions if you're hanging out in the backyard and having a good time and, and, and they're important discussions. We should talk about them. But in terms of political movements, like let's get people together with fists in the air, like we need action, we should completely avoid this discussion and not talk about it. This is my two cents on it. What you're doing, no, Mikhail, I- with all due respect, is you're doing, you're falling into that pitfall that the freedom crowds do, talking about crazy philosophical concepts which totally alienates your average person in the street. I love uh, it. Again, Mark you, loves you it. Gotta, you got to distinguish, you know, uh, because I, I'm, I'm in the trap of trying to do both. You see, I'm a political, I'm a political activist. I'm a politician as well as a philosopher, and I've been uh, developing this idea of a social contract uh, of um, uh, contractual non-aggression principle for a while now. So, uh, but you can distinguish between the two. So when I address a political rally, uh, when I talk to people politically, I don't touch those issues as well. I, I'm actually very utilitarian in my argumentation because uh, utilitarian arguments resonate much stronger with people than philosophical arguments. But then when uh, people start to test, you know, your background, when they start to test your ideas, you have to know the theory. And this theory has to be, uh, uh, has to be uh, sound, you know, Uh, otherwise you're going to become populist. So as I said, you got to use populist uh, means, you got to, use populism as a uh, as a way of delivering your message but you should not let populism dilute your core values so i think both things matter mm. in the right context yes we completely agree do you did you heard the summary that i gave at the beginning did you disagree with anything that i laid out and termed the live and let live legal principle or do you think i accurately explained the principle uh, no, I think you accurately uh, explained the principle. I just don't think it was a political delivery. It was a moral delivery. And okay. that's uh, fair enough. Uh, hence the, hence fair our enough. discussion. So, so if we throw out the question of what is the best, most justified way to come to accept the principle, if we if we throw that out and just assume that, you know, many people, in fact, I think most people sort of gravitate to the phrase live and let live. If they accept that, does it matter at all? 
assuming we don't get tested and pushed into the why would I accept live and let live, right? Because that guy's probably not going to agree with the principle anyway. But if somebody accepts the principle, if they say, look, Mikhail, I haven't really thought about it, but that principle, it sounds great. I'm totally on board. Like why I, why I take that position, I don't know, but I take that position. Do we need to establish the roots, the fundamental philosophical foundation with that person? Or can we count that, that person in our crowd and move forward? Well, but you see that, that uh, people are very quick to, to agree with the ideas they don't entirely understand. And yes. The implications of libertarianism as well as let, live and let live principles are very, um, well, they have consequences. And people don't realize those consequences unless you start explaining it yes. to them. And that's how you get those neophytes, you know, people who get uh, uh, in love with libertarian ideas, but in a couple of months, you know, they right. get uh, disillusioned and uh, move away from them because they, those ideas weren't delivered in an efficient manner they were i entirely yeah. agree with you here but but we're thinking the proper order of things is number one get them to agree with the principle first before they realize hey taxes violate the principle and all kinds of things that you want to impose on other people violate them before you have that discussion get them locked into the principle let them put their fist in the air and say i love this 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 thing about non-aggression, I'm a big fan of it. And then get them, as I like to say in my book, swear the blood oath, right? Uh, do we have to violate this principle for any reason? No, 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 no. And then start talking about the issues. I think that's the proper Is approach. Do you agree? No, I, no I, I agree with that. Uh, I, but uh, the the way you delivered it in the start, at the start of the show, you didn't, uh, uh, it, it felt like you didn't have the step, the step B. You didn't know what to do next after you got people signed up because again live and let live and that's the important thing and the way you delivered it is a moral argument a moral argument is as a weak argument unfortunately politically people are not moral creatures they uh, think in terms of profits they think in utilitarian terms in those uh uh, and those arguments are much more effective than morality. It may sound abhorrent to you and me, but that's just the way things are. Uh, so yes, you will get people signed up really quick if you say this uh, snappy slogan, you know, live and let live. Uh, but uh, unless you know what to do next, and unless you work with real or with real issues, you're going to lose those people real fast. And that was the problem with libertarian movement in the past 60 years. That's why it's been growing so slowly. Well, here again, I think we're in agreement, right? This was just a summary. Had we been, have I, had I been given a speech here to non-libertarians introducing them, the very next place I would have gone was to start talking about issues. Now let's talk about how do we apply this legal principle. And as but, I did with again, my book, I do a look, parade look, Mark, you're doing this. You're doing. You're, you're committing the same mistake. You're uh, basing your argument uh, on the moral ground. So it's a moral argument, and then you start to develop the moral argument. But you lose people uh, before. Um, but the, the, the people's attachment to the morality is very weak. So your argument will be much stronger if you take the, uh, their their. Uh, uh, real concern, like, for example, house pricing, right, or medical care, or, uh, I don't know, freedom of crime, right? Like crime is, is a big issue in the U.S. right now. And you start to explain why did we get to this bad situation and who's to blame? It's the government, it's the politicians, you know, it's the liberals, et cetera, et cetera. And how can it be solved by libertarian means? And that way you, <coughs> that way you win uh, people long term because you win them uh, on the ground of their actual 
issues and concerns instead of winning them on the moral ground. Uh, let me make uh, sure I'm that understanding. Politically, that's more efficient. I want to make sure I'm understanding what you're saying. Are you saying yeah. either, number one, first establish the principle and then move to the practical arguments about like, say, hey, why is it we have a lack of housing? Well, the government did this rent control thing and this doesn't make sense. And Or are you saying just jump into rent control, ignore the principle part and just jump oh, in. I'm not saying, I'm not, I'm not saying ignore the principle. I'm saying first address a real issue and then explain that, hey, there's this principle, live with not ah, live with the principle, a non-aggression principle that actually solves that issue really well. And those other uh, solutions that are offered by the government are just going to make your situation even worse. And that's what I've been doing. And that's uh, that's been really, in my practice, was a really okay. effective approach. So you're saying, hey, Mark, here's what I do. I lead with the hot button topic. I get people yeah. fired up and they get excited. And then as I explain to them the fix, I, I weave in the principle, exactly. get, get them to accept the principle. And then every other issue going forward, I just apply the same principle. If that's what you're saying, we're in total agreement here. No, yeah, that's exactly what I'm saying. Again, uh, I'm explaining the political side of yes, things. Yes, in fact, that's... one of our chapter leaders, John in Portugal, says the same thing as you. He says, hey, Mark, you know, the big issue here is forced vaccinations and this, that, and the next thing. So I lead with that, get people fired up, and then I explain, hey, there's this principle, and here's how we solve it, and it's going to solve just fine because, you know, everybody decides for themselves and we move on. I have absolutely no problem with that approach, so long as we're talking about the principle, right? Because I don't want to argue about every single issue on a separate basis. I want to convince them, in order for them to get on our team, they got to ultimately understand this principle and then learn how to apply it. to. Because there's going to be new issues that come up next year and the year after that we can't even predict. We need to give them a way to think about these issues so they come out the same way in the pro-freedom crowd. Do you agree or disagree with that? No, I agree with that completely. I even have my own show every Sunday on my YouTube channel. I have a news show, and it's uh, not like it's not presented as a libertarian show. I just address the the uh, the biggest uh, news of the week, and uh, every time I address the news, I actually weave in, as you mentioned, uh, libertarian ideas and explain like like look, the government cr created the problem that it's trying to solve, and the solution is going to create even bigger problem, and that's how libertarians would have solved that, and it's much more efficient way. And uh, if uh, only we were following that advice, libertarian advice in the past years, we wouldn't get in the mess that we are in right now. And uh, it's uh, presented as a news show. Uh, and uh, I'm just explaining the news, but I'm using libertarian prison, this lens, you know, like to to uh, to get to the core of the problem. And I think that's what the libertarians can be about. But that's not what it is now, unfortunately. The mainstream libertarians, I need, I mean. Yeah, I mean, here's a bit of our concern, and it can be pretty well summed up by uh, when Mark uh, gave a speech for the libertarian candidate uh, when she came through. Yes, yeah. Um, Joe Jorgensen. Joe Jorgensen. Um, and Mark was asked to give a open up a speech for her when she came through Arizona, and then she spoke. And her speech uh, did not mention the non-aggression principle or the principles on which the freedom movement stands. Rather, it walked down a number of different issues and kind of checked off, well, here's our position as good libertarians on the drug war. Here's our position as good libertarians on this type of law, this type of issue, this type of law. And when people left from that, all they really got was a checklist of if you want to be a good libertarian, here's, you, here's what your position should be on these various issues. That's ineffective. That's 
That's totally ineffective because these people are just, oh, okay, well, they don't understand why they were just instructed that these should be their positions. They're totally unprincipled. And one of the biggest problems with the R's and the D's in our country, in the United States, is because they are horrendously unprincipled, horrendously unprincipled, and rather just identify with, here's what our team says that our position should be on these issues, you end up with moral inconsistencies in their positions. You see them changing the the left in this country right now in the United States is the party about censorship and shutting down controversial speech and everything like that. And uh, the, the right is uh, doing things like cracking down on trade and doing things that uh, tariffs and things of that nature for to stifle free market capitalism. And these are just symptoms of being horrendously unprincipled. So one of the things that we want to avoid is just giving people a checklist of here's uh, what you should feel on issues. Do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah. And again, it's the problem with, of delivery. And uh, I, I've been following the American elections in the past several years. And Joe Jorgensen is not a politician. She's a, unfortunately a cultural warrior. And I think the biggest issue, the biggest problem with the American politics right now is the inability to distinguish between cultural issues and political issues. Uh, and if you listen to the way uh, Joe Jorgensen presented her uh checklist of ideas or checklist of libertarian solutions. She never addressed the the core principles, which I agree with you uh, completely. And she tried to present libertarians as this group of people who have similar views on issues like drugs, for example, which I think is a major mistake. Yes, we are against government uh, regulations, of drugs, but you you have to realize, and this is the thing that I've been ex- explaining to Russian libertarians libertarians incessantly, uh, is that incessantly is that uh, there are other means of controlling, let's say, uh, movement of drugs apart from government regulations, apart from government restrictions. And those means are much more effective. And I think the issue that libertarians in the West uh, have been criminally avoiding is the issue of freedom of association, because that's what government takes away from us. And that's what makes people, uh, that's what pits people of different cultural backgrounds against each other and doesn't allow them to to, um, pursue common political goals because they're they're culturally different, but they can be politically similar. If you explain libertarians libertarian ideas to them properly. And the proper explanation is that no, libertarians do not have a common position on drugs. They do not have a common position on pride parades or whatever. They do not have a common position on, um, let's say, multiculturalism. You mean personal, you're talking about personal positions here. No, I'm talking about cultural positions. That's important. It doesn't doesn't have to be personal. It can be communal. Uh, that's why I mentioned freedom of association, because freedom of association, like, uh, let's say, a municipality or um, homeowners association, they can enact their own rules that protect them from the kind of cultural um, things that they feel that they are uncomfortable with. And libertarians are comfortable with pe- people protecting their communities from drugs, for example, when it's the community that takes that decision using the freedom of association and not the government that forces the decision onto the community, be it 
either ban on drugs or legalization of drugs. And I feel this message, or this means, this delivery is much more efficient because it takes us away from those hot button issues that divides people on cultural grounds and actually manages to unite them under the uh, under the uh, principle of law, under the principle of uh, uh, non-aggression. I think I think we're again in complete agreement here. What I call a personal decision, I think you're calling cultural because by saying a whole bunch of people getting together all have the same personal opinion on something. So, for example, just to loop back to the drugs, uh, the reason we take the position on drugs is not because we've been convinced that marijuana is not harmful or something like that, or it helps some medical condition. We take the position, the the political position that competent adults decide for themselves what they put in their own bodies. But as a personal matter or as a cultural matter, one might say, I hate drugs. I don't want to associate with anybody who uses drugs. I don't want drugs in my community. So let's form a community. We can call it a homeowners association where everybody agrees voluntarily up front in advance that if you live in this community, you, you can't use drugs. You, you can't have guns. You must have a gun. Whatever. You have to paint your house purple. You can't paint your house purple. People with this color skin are not welcome or are only welcome or religious views here are required or not required. Any of that. We don't care about because it's all voluntary. Are we on the same page? Or we no, we're on the same page here, but getting back, <coughs> sorry, uh, but getting back to the Andy's argument, uh, that's not how uh, mainstream libertarians, capital L libertarians are addressing that issues right now, that issue right now. And that's not how Joe Jorgensen addressed the issue of drugs in her presidential speech. And that's not how Joe Jorgensen addressed the problem of mass immigration to the US in her speech, uh, in her presidential speech or in her tweets for that matter. Uh, so yes, we are on the same page, but that's not how those issues are being dealt with right now by the mainstream libertarians in the West, at least. I want to get your thoughts on something. This is a, a conversation yeah. we've had with several other podcast guests. There are lots of places in the world where people are uh, not living in a free society. Um, there, there are many governments that have um, more socialist type of regi regimes or social programs, things of that nature where there is less freedom. But a lot of people who live in those types of countries really enjoy their social programs, right? We hear about this all the time, that like folks in Canada or in Scandinavia with, you know, 68% tax rates uh, that get all of their um, social programs paid for, content and happy and, and good with it. And you don't really see a vast sweeping political change in places where people are generally content with their lives. I mean, what's the what, what's your thoughts on this? And I don't know what it's like in Russia. It doesn't surprise me to hear that thousands of people turned out for your rallies because, as we found out, for example, with our Team Africa chapters, um, in places of the world where people are deprived of freedom, they're hungry for it. And if an idea comes out that allows them to say, oh, okay, this looks like we could push the ball in the right direction, a lot of times you'll see a great reaction. What are your thoughts on this? Well, uh, obviously, it's much easier to uh, explain libertarian ideas in countries like Russia, in, in countries like, uh, Af well, in, in a continents like Africa, where people are disillusioned with, disillusioned with the government and they don't really expect anything good to come from the government. So it's just a more fertile environment for spreading libertarian ideas. Uh, so it doesn't surprise me that it's easier to spread libertarian ideas in Russia rather than in Scandinavia. But what you need to understand about politics, and that's going to get us back to this talk about real politics, is that uh, 
in countries like Sweden, the power balance has been reached between the uh, aggressor and the victim. And the victim is so weak um, that it doesn't have any means of protecting its own interests against the society. So, you know, like there's this uh, a terrible joke. You know what uh, nine out of 10 people, uh, you know what nine out of 10 people enjoy? What's that? Uh, it's gang rape. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, about that. We, we, we have a we have a different version over here. It's kind of like three wolves and one sheep are going to decide what's for yeah, dinner. Well, it's, that it's, kind yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I feel I feel like dirty jokes. Uh, sometimes I liked the darker the version message. better. I thought it was good. Yeah, uh, it's uh, it's a more efficient way of delivering the same message. Uh, so yeah, so the power balancing countries like Scandinavia in countries like Finland are such that it's very hard for the victim uh, to defend its interests because, uh, you know, nine out of 10 people agree. You know, the only thing I would say to that crowd is, look, uh, if nine out of 10 people agree, then as to the nine people, you guys are fine. You can agree to whatever you like. The only point we're making is you have no right to force that 10th person into the scheme. Well, now, we know that the scheme doesn't work unless well, they fo force well, the Well, you know, you, you know there, again, get, getting back to the joke I just, uh, I just mentioned that, you know, there is no scheme if there is no victim, you know. There is no scheme if there is no victim. Well, if they're, in, if they're in agreement with the scheme, then there's no well, victim. Well, they are in the green, you know, th those are the wolves that are in agreement to eat the sheep. You know, this agreement doesn't exist without the sheep. There has to be a victim. Yeah, so this is where we get into the contractarian stuff, right? Because I'm going to say, I'm going to say, when the wolves vote to eat the sheep, there is an injustice against the sheep, even though the sheep was outvoted or there was uh, the nine came up with some kind of a social contract that they forced the sheep into or something like that. Uh, I don't care about that. I think that the nine. But if you uh, that's that look, you, you just made a mistake. You can't force a sheep. Well, you can't force someone into a social contract. Once you force someone, there ceases to be a social contract. Right. Fair, fair right. enough. And what you get is a state. Fair he enough. Would, he would reject, as would I, this concept of tacit consent. Yes. He would, he would reject yeah. that. He would, he would reject it as yeah. nonsense. So, all right. Well, let yeah. me let me throw something else on the table because we've been talking now for for a while. And we haven't really reached any points of disagreements. So, How boring. I wish yeah, we could so, disagree on so something. So let me just throw something out there. I have two interests here. Interest number one, um, I want a chapter in Russia. And I'm not hearing anything from you that says, Mark, I disagree with this live and let live approach. I don't like how you're saying it. Here's why it won't work or anything like that. I don't know why we don't have a live and let live chapter that you are running from somewhere else besides Russia, inside of Russia to get people sort of galvanized as part of this movement. Number one goal. Number two goal. I want to hang out with you again, man. You're a fun guy to hang out with. I had a blast uh, talking with you. I can't even get you to return my emails. What do I got to do? To, to I'm terrible. I'm terrible at answering emails. And thanks to your assistant and my assistant, we finally scheduled scheduled this talk. Uh, um, talking about chapters in Russia. Well, we have a very healthy libertarian party in Russia, which actually advances the same uh, the same ideals and the same principles that we're talking about right now. So that's the reason why it's just uh, it doesn't make sense to make another organization uh, that doubles the, the the features, that doubles the ideals that are already being represented by the Libertarian Party of Russia. So no offense, but that's just, again, the, that's the... But if we compared the two approaches, right, you've already said to me, hey, Mark, the, the Libertarian approach has been hugely flawed, and this is why it's been no, ineffective. I'm, I'm talking, hey, I'm talking about Libertarian approach 
in the US. In Russia, I basically, my party and my YouTube channel and my news outlet that I just launched represent libertarian uh, ideals. That's what libertarians in Russia is. We don't have similar issues uh, that you have in the US in terms of you know legacy uh, mistakes of libertarian party of the US, for example. But we want to connect you up to the global movement here, the big movement, to connect you to everyone else, because this has to be a world movement, right? I mean, if, if we got Russia uh, to adopt freedom, this would be fantastic. But there is still going to make a libertarian international. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what we're trying to do. I think that the world is has become small enough now, given our our technology, that we can't just be concerned about violations of the principle from within our own borders. Because look, what we just saw in China, for example. Example. Somebody did something in China that's causing people all over the world to have to fight the issue of forced vaccinations now and wear masks. So we can't just ignore what's going on in the rest of the world because technology is such right now. And it's going to be moving even further and further in this direction where smaller numbers of people located anywhere in the world can present a substantial risk to anyone else anywhere in the world. I'm really wary of things like we can't ignore something that is happening in the world. Do, ha do libertarians have a uh, moral right to interfere in things that governments do? Absolutely, they do. Do they have uh, the obligation to do that? Absolutely not. So I would vote, avoid the, uh, the, uh, um, the idea of, you know, we can't ignore. Yes, we can. Maybe we shouldn't. Uh, and you got to distinguish those two things because that's what got Republicans into trouble. That's what got the U.S. into trouble. You know, U.S. was this perfectly fine country until the 20th century, you know, isolationist, you know, minding its own business. Success story, that's what made the, uh, the American dream a reality. That's what made uh, uh, American exceptionalism so uh, a point of envy for the rest of the world. But in the last 100 years, you lost that independence and you got too much involved in things that shouldn't matter to the American taxpayers. Uh, and uh, it invited the world's problems onto your own soil. Uh, and I think libertarians should avoid that mistake, even though they have a moral right to interfere in what governments do anywhere, because again, talking about non-aggression principle and the contractual nature of non-aggression principle, those people, they are not subscribed to our ideas and thus it makes us, uh, it makes uh, what libertarians do a defensive action, an act of defense. Uh, but it doesn't mean that just because you can interfere doesn't mean you should interfere. And that's a very important thing. I certainly agree with that. But I'm arguing we should interfere. And the reason we should interfere is because there are things going on in the world right now that can affect it. Like, for example... Uh, if India and Pakistan, who both have nuclear weapons, decide to get into a scrap, for us to say, oh, well, you know, that's none of our business, either of them could destroy the entire planet. So if you believe that, then we should have some interest in what's going on over there. Well, 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 when you say we should have interest and we should interfere, who are we are you talking about? Because uh, every libertarian will have a different, uh, um, a different uh, uh, approach to this. You know, well, this is a good there question. There are plenty of libertarians who have nothing to do with interfering with China, for example. I totally, I totally to agree and understand this point. And and the mm -hmm. we is the people who are inclined to do something about it. Well, people so, who are, if we're talking about, you know, a private military. Yes, company, that's exactly. I have no, I have no, I have no problem with that. Uh, that. This can happen. There are 
people who feel this is an important issue can uh, join, participate, and I'll be fine with that. But it should not be a government's decision. Well, it can't, it can't be, right? Because we have to fund it voluntarily. Otherwise, it violates the rule. And so uh, yeah, yeah, it, it has sure. to be a private action. But but what I'm suggesting is we privately should care about such things because these people... Sure, sure. I just, think, I just think there's so many people caring about in the US, for example, or in Russia, both of our governments, you know, are at fault uh, uh, of the same of the same mistake. Are so much caring about what happens in the rest of the world that they've been sacrificing interests of their own people uh, within their own borders. And uh, uh, so, I just don't think that's an issue that uh, libertarians should spend too much energy on because everyone else is spending their energy on those issues already. But everything you're describing are just involuntary government actions, right? And so I think, so if they were voluntary private actions, I think you'd be in favor of it. So what you're saying is, well, America sticks its nose where it shouldn't be, which is certainly true. Um, But uh, it would be a different paradigm if we were actually all following the live and let live principle here. Because of course, we, no. Uh, yeah, yeah the, uh, of course. But again, we have to dis- you have to distinguish again the theory and the political practice. Because in the political reality that we are in right now, you know, talking about another military interventionist company in uh, in China, talking about it this about this issue today in the U.S. In the statist U.S. that exists today, what you're actually doing is tacitly, well, not involuntarily, support uh, a military campaign that will be started by the government. And that's uh, an issue, I think. No, uh, I I agree with you here. The reason I brought this up is because I don't think that uh, people, whether they're in Russia or in the United States or in Africa, can should only be concerned about things that are going on in their country. We're not disagreeing on that. We're not disagreeing on that. Again, I just made a distinguish between a must and should. Should, yes. Must, that's not for other libertarians to decide. But everything else, we're uh, we're doing. But it, so I guess the question then is, which approach do you think will be more likely to garner more support across the world if people encounter it? A, the libertarian approach that pushes something called the non-aggression principle that people don't understand, right? You you like it, and I like it, and Andy likes it, and people say, non-aggression? What are you talking about? I believe in self-defense. And that we're starting from that point. Or a movement that's pushing something called live and let live that virtually everybody who hears, and I, I admit, admittedly, they don't know what it means yet. They don't know how it applies yet. But at least the wind is at our back. They say, hell yeah, I love live and let live. Which of those two approaches do you think might be more uh, successful and efficient and effective? Again, th- philosophically, I'm a non-aggression principle kind of guy. If we're talking about which slogan would I print on my cap, you know, uh, during an election campaign, it would be live and let live. Well, if they mean the same thing and we define them in the same way, then why wouldn't you put live and let live on your cap and say we're, we're now pushing the live and let live movement? And we have a group, by the way, in Africa and, and in Europe, and we're part of a huge movement here in Russia. We're trying to get it done all over the world. Because there's, a, again, you're mixing, uh, again, you, you got to distinguish the, the political part and the philosophical part. We have a, philosoph- a philosophical tradition already. It's the philosophical tradition of Rothbard. It's the philosophical tradition of Hans-Hermann Hoppe, of uh, 
other libertarian authors. They rely on non-aggression principles. And what you're suggesting right now is, you know, to, to cut away this uh, no. tradition and start a new one. No. And what I'm saying is that not live and let live is a great slogan. Uh, and that's something I used in my own lectures as well before we even met, because it's, it's, it's a great way of uh, uh, presenting your ideas. Uh, but philosophically speaking, I, I'm, I, uh, again, non-aggression principles and, the, uh, and the, the literature that is already there is doing a great job of, uh, of uh, creating a uh, sound theory that is necessary for libertarians to avoid the um, to avoid the, the dark side of populism, to avoid uh, losing uh, our core ideas. Yeah, maybe you misunderstand what I'm suggesting. I am not suggesting cutting away any of that intellectual, philosophical, economics work that's been done in the past. In fact, Walter Block, who uh, is probably, you know, I'm, I'm, you might you might say Hans Hermann Hoppe, uh, but Walter Block, who- knew Block is great. I love Walter Block. We've been actually planning his lecture in Moscow for over a year now, but because of COVID, we had to postpone it over and over again. He's, a, he's, an, ama he's an amazing guy. Walter's been on our podcast twice. Walter wants to be on the board of Live and Let Live. Walter's a huge fan of Live and Let Live because- he recognizes we're not throwing out the work of his buddy Murray Rothbard or his work or any of that. We can say, look, all of that we support. It goes to the legal principle that we call the live and let live legal principle. But they didn't talk about this moral principle, which also, by the way, I think really appeals to people who don't know the legal principle at all. But the kind of people who would be open minded enough to accept our philosophy Love the fact that we're talking about voluntary kindness and tolerance and open-mindedness, which Rothbard doesn't talk about. And we're adding that. We're bringing this to the table as an improvement on marketing our theory. Okay. Uh, can I bring up the subject that we just touched on uh, at the beginning of our show? We yes. talked about libertarianism and how I think that it should become revolutionary because it has revolutionary idea at its core. Uh, and uh, it hasn't been really marketed and used as such uh, ever really until I think very recently uh, is that and that's the reason why I adhere to the contract uh, uh, to the contractual nature of non-aggression principles because I think the most important part for libertarians to start defending our ideas and that's why the left has been so effective at defending their ideas is because the left is very efficient at distinguishing between the enemy uh, and and their own libertarians not so much uh, so what would you suggest my question what would you suggest as a mean of distinguishing the enemies from uh, from our own lot from okay. libertarians well let's talk about the enemies for a second these yeah. are these are enemies can be put in two different categories category one People who have never heard of our philosophy have no idea what we're talking about, never thought about separating the ethical and moral ideas from legal ideas, and, no. and just, just have never been presented with our philosophy and might be persuaded to come on our team. And then there's the other package of group that they, even if they understood everything we're saying, they reject it because they seek to impose aggression on other people to get their way of life across. I don't know who we're talking to in that crowd. So I want to reach out to that crowd first with the, with the notion that they don't know what we're talking about and explain it. Go ahead. So to the two questions then. Uh, so first one, is it the, um, if the action is, if the aggression is done by someone who uh, is not adhering to the non-aggression principle or doesn't understand it or doesn't know about it, uh, is it in let 
in live and let live uh, kind of philosophy, is it considered uh, an act of aggression? Of course, or it's an, because it's not. No, it's it's an act of it's aggression. As a way. It's an act of aggression, okay. which is done by somebody who hasn't really stopped to think about the nature of aggression and how the world could work out fine without it. And I, in, and in fact, this is the most common form of aggression. Yes. People don't understand that by Absolutely. sorting regimes. So my question is, what do you think? What do you think is the most efficient way of? Uh, uh converting those people i want to lead i want to say hey i don't want to tell them i'm a libertarian right now because they're going to say oh i know about those guys and they're done listening we suffer okay. from the legacy in, in right. this uh i, I want to say to them oh, hey, i understand that i want to say to them how do you feel about live and let live and, and have them say they love it and if they don't then i'm talking about that and then i want to talk to them about the aspirational values and see if they love that if they love that now they're really excited <laughs> and want to listen to what we have to say and then i want to hit them with the legal principle because i want them on our team if i can get them and that's how you lose and that's how you lose support and uh, remain uh marginal unfortunately because uh, at the same time as you're explaining those moral and ethical ideas the government comes and says hey look you want to work for police and beat up you know those uh, libertarian protesters you're gonna get uh, a hefty wage hey you want to you know rob people and get money for it want to become a taxman hey here you go you can become a taxman the government comes and uh, a libertarian, and uh, the same market forces are applied to the libertarians as well. You know, a libertarian, you know, does something that government doesn't like, the government ruins its life, and it's uh, amazing. And I mentioned it in Colombia when we first met that libertarians don't understand. Like we talk, they talk about market forces incessantly all the time, but they don't really understand how market forces work. So it's not the power of persuasion will always lose out to the market forces that actually play uh, on the government side today because government create incentives that makes it uh, that makes it profitable to side with the, with the government and makes it very risky and very uh, unprofitable. Uh, I forgot the proper word, but you get what I mean, to side with the libertarian side. Uh, so until we put incentives on the libertarian side, we will always lose out, no matter how good our persuasion is, no matter how good our slogans and marketing is, we will always lose out because of the market forces. So the question I'm really asking is, how can you put those market forces to work in favor of libertarian ideas? I, I gotta say I'm a little confused. I have an answer to that, but I wanna I'm hear a, your answer first. I'm a little confused by the question. I don't, I don't know exactly what you mean when you say put market forces on the libertarian. Do you understand? Uh, no, not really. Yeah, you have to clarify you the don't, question. Okay, let me, I'll, I'll clarify that. I, I think it's just the first time you uh, face that argument. Uh, okay, so basically, so the government has money on its side. Yes. That makes it profitable to serve government They interests. can pay people so to every be thugs. Time, they can pay people to be thugs. They can pay people to be tax, taxmen. They can pay yes. people, you know, to do whatever things. Right. Uh, that's one of the incentives the government used. The other incentive government used, market incentive, is fear. It, the government can instill fear. Right. Uh, if you disagree with its policies, if you uh, organize a rally, the government you will use force uh, to to dis to disincentivize you uh, from doing that. That's we're, another. We're in agreement. We're in agreement the, here. I, I usually just represent this argument is, by saying they yeah. got the bigger guns and the power right now. The money, the it's, power. But it's not about. The, but it's not about the bigger guns. It's not about the power. And we've we've seen that uh, in numerous places. The the last time we saw it in Afghanistan, you know, a guy with a rifle and a donkey uh, won over the biggest military. 
uh, in the world. How did they manage that? Because they had market incentives on their side. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not uh, um, saying that they are good guys. I'm just saying, I'm talking about real politics. I'm talking about market. I'm talking about incentives. And, and actually, that wasn't, have, that wasn't had true. And, and, and actually, that had, wasn't true. No, that you, you, you're going to argue. Let, let me finish the okay, argument. Okay, and okay. You're gonna, uh, and you're going to disagree. So uh, they had several incentives on their side. They had the incentive of fear, terrorism. It works. Again, I'm not saying it's good. I'm not saying uh, I'm not uh, uh, relieving them from responsibility. I'm just saying it works. So the fear, it works. Uh, they had, uh, they controlled women, uh, and that's another strong incentives. That's what happened when uh, when the American army left. They started distributing the women the, of the conquered people between their uh, biggest thugs. Yeah, it's an incentive. It works. Uh, the other one is, uh, but they didn't have money. They didn't have power in the sense that you're talking about. But they had uh, the will to put incentives on their side. And if you look at other countries, not just Afghanistan, and it's not a, uh, but it's, but it's not a coincidence that uh, Afghanistan not only won over USSR, but also uh, US and also Great Britain before that, because um, they worked with incentives. And it's the same issue everywhere where you see a dissenting, uh, a dissenting group of people. Uh, Ireland, why did Ireland manage to uh, to get its independence from the UK and and uh, uh, Scotland still remains part of the union because the revolution or IRA, the uh, Irish uh, Revolutionary Army, took worked with incentives and made and rose and uh, made everything to raise stakes so much that it. Uh, uh, that flipped the game in their favor. It's the same story everywhere. It's the same story in Russia. The reason uh, why Putin is having an upper hand, even though uh, Russia is objectively weak today, uh, even though Russia doesn't have this uh, uh, this clout, doesn't have the army to support uh, uh, to support itself as much as the U.S., for example. The reason why, or the Europe for that matter. The reason why it's winning out is because it uses market incentives to forward its ideas. And, the, and that's the paradigm that uh, libertarians should get themselves into if they want their ideas to prevail, because otherwise the market forces will win out and libertarians will lose. Mikhail, just so that I can understand a little bit clearer and that our listeners might be able to understand a little bit clearer, can you just give yeah. some examples of, for example, Russia you were just talking about? What what are the market forces yeah. or incentives that the Putin regime has installed to allow them to be victorious? Let's use an example of Belarusia just for exa- uh, just uh, quickly because it's easier and it's more uh, recent. Uh, you, you heard about the immigration crisis on the border of Belarusia, right? Yes, Just about yeah. uh, uh, Belarus, two weeks yeah. ago, Lukashenko, Lukashenko imported some yeah. immigrants yes. from Africa and Syria, right. and he forced them to the Polish border. And Europe really didn't know what to do. And the Europe backed out because they didn't have the political will to protect their own borders. Uh, and so what they did instead, they started negotiating with Lukashenko. And that's exactly what he wanted, because he wanted to be seen as a president uh, after what happened in Belarus, after he lost the election and uh, uh, cracked down on its people. And I think your audience heard something about that, at least. So he used incentives, uh, incentives that uh, he had a will to use. So he he made something unthinkable in uh, in Western politics. Uh, he, as I mentioned, imported some refugees, and he created a crisis that didn't cost him anything. 
uh, but uh, gave him a political upper hand. So this is a market incentive. When I talk about market incentive, I, I'm talking about market in a very broad term. I'm talking about uh, incentives that uh, push people toward a certain direction. So it pushed a European government. Like, what is Belarusian? You know, it's a tiny economy uh, with the, no political influence whatsoever. But just by using this one single incentive that could destabilize uh, internal politics in Europe, uh, he won out and uh, is seen as a legitimate power in Belarus right now. Putin uses the same thing. I understand the incentives on the government side. There's tons of incentives there, right? There's money, there's power, there's influence, yeah. there's prestige, there's all kinds of things. We recognize that. What I'm not clear on are what are the incentives that you believe that the libertarians need to use for the people to get them excited to get on board to push for freedom? That that's the part I'm a little confused. But it's about. not about. Uh, but it's not about be, getting people excited. It's like uh, again, exciting excitement is about persuasion, and persuasion is not efficient enough. Uh, it's about action, uh, and the thing is that. Uh, uh, you know why the left wins over the libertarians all the time? Uh, because they just care more, because they are prepared and willing to use means that are unthinkable to the right right now. Uh, look at the BLM movement, Black Lives Matter movement. Look at how the West behaves when the most heinous acts are being committed by their own people, uh, by the left, by the BLM. Like we remember these automatic zones that were established in Seattle, for example, uh, two years ago. And look how it was treated by the liberal media. It was treated as a legitimate concern. Yes, they were criticizing, you know, like, hey, maybe you're going over the board. But they also were spicing it with the with the uh, sayings like, hey, those people are fed up. You know, you gotta uh, look into their concerns because, like, uh, because that's what you're pushing them to do. And now look how the right and the libertarians treated the Rome when the 6th of January happened, when nothing similar to the uh, acts of, uh, uh, <coughs> when nothing similar to the looting and to the destruction of BLM uh, took place after the election. Uh, they turned their backs on Ashley Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt was a libertarian. They started talking about, hey, you know, those guys are not part of us. You know, we condemn them. You should not condemn your radicals. You should embrace them. You should uh, embrace the, or their concerns and you should, uh, um, you should celebrate what they do because otherwise you will always lose out because you've got to have a radical wing and the radicals is the only group of people that is capable of pushing your agenda forward. Le, le, uh, the left understood this from the beginning. It's in the Lenin's books, it's in the Trotsky's books, it's in the Gramsci's books. Uh, but the libertarians are still very reluctant to accept that. But that's unfortunately how politics works. And that's the reason why the world has been shifting to the left since the, the Cold War. What does a, a radical libertarian do? How do you radicalize libertarians? Do they do the radicalized libertarians exist right now that we aren't embracing well, imagine, well, well enough? Well, well, uh, well. I just mentioned the sixth of January and the Ashley Babbitt. Well, those, you think and, those uh, guys were libertarians? libertarians? Just to be clear, those guys weren't libertarians, and the right is not. Well, Ashley compressed. Babbitt. Ashley Babbitt was self self proclaimed libertarian. Uh, it wasn't her Twitter. It wasn't her social media. I'm not saying there were no libertarians there on January 6th, but that was not a libertarian event. Just FYI, that was a <laughs> right. No, it's it was not a it was not a libertarian uh, event. Neither was uh, the looting that took place in Kenosha, for example, right. before Kyle Rittenhouse, you know, uh, acted in self-defense. Uh, and the left has no problem, you know, distinguishing the two, but also embracing the act as a whole as an act of legitimate disagreement, as an act of legitimate concern. 
concern and people being, you know, pushed uh, to this, yes, uh, unfortunate act, and that's the kind of language the left would have used, unfortunate act of disobedience. But, you know, but the real uh, uh, property, uh, that's what the left would have said, but the real proper perpetrators are the com the capitalists, you know, the, the Republicans, the libertarians, et cetera, et cetera, the, the, uh, the cisgender uh, males, uh, whatever language they use now, right? That's what they would have said. But what you're saying is that, hey, you know, that was not a libertarian event. Maybe there were some libertarians, we don't know, but that was not a libertarian event. That's just not the approach the left would have uh, taken if something like that happened. And in fact, that's not what they do. Uh, when it happens today. What is it that you're calling for libertarians when you're talking to them in, in these crowds? What is it you want them to do besides convince other no, it's people? Not about, no, it's not. It's the liberta let libertarians fight uh, their own war as they see fit. It's just don't turn your back when people do something that you yourself is are isn't capable of. Uh, as I said, I don't see, I see the 6th of January not as something. Uh, I see 6th of January as a... Um, an act of desperation on the side of libertarians and the side of uh, you know conservatives. I see it as a sign of disconnect of the government and the people. And I see those people as victims and not as perpetrators. And maybe you should start seeing them as victims as well. Well, we, we try to lump, not lump everybody together on January 6th. I mean, first of all, there is a big difference between the libertarian position and the rights conservative position in the United States. Huge. Chasm. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying it's the same thing. What yeah. I'm saying is that just the, the mistakes libertarians and Republicans and Republicans are doing towards their own radical wings uh, are the same. Yeah, and, and people did radically different things on January 6th Absolutely. who attended those rallies. Some just people, like people at the Black Lives Matter protested radically different things. Some of them looted, some of them rioted. We scoff when the left... Uh, defended the looters and said, well, this is just a result of social oppression. They should uh, expect the looting and everything like that. We scoff at that because we know that that's based on a fiction, right? We know that that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. We know that it's completely ridiculous to say that running in and getting the big screen TV uh, but, is a sign but of look oppression. Where, but uh, but uh, that's how we get to the Feelings don't care about your facts. Well, hold on real, real quick, just to finish, because this same critique <laughs> um, can be applied to the January 6th event. A lot of people were there. As Mark said, you can't lump them all together. Yes, people were there as a result of kind of a, a disconnect between the people and the government. And a lot of them were there based on the fact that they believed uh, that the election was stolen fraudulently and there was widespread voter fraud and things of that nature that um, a lot of it has turned out to be completely based on a fiction. And one of the reasons why I would similarly scoff at that if we if somebody tried to defend them and say this is just a sign of people disconnect from the government. Well, yes, yeah, that's, that's true. But we want it to be based in reality. We have a commitment to facts in this movement. It's one of the most important things. We need to converge on facts rather than spinning things to fit our talking points and agendas. Absolutely. And uh, you need to, to – uh, you can't uh... – let me paraphrase myself. Okay, uh, so again, it brings us back to this uh, dilemma be between you know facts don't care about your feelings and feelings don't care about your facts. And when your enemy abandons factual reality completely, you cannot win over that enemy with uh, um, by playing by playing square, you know, by playing by the kind of rules that your enemy is not following. Uh, so it's like. Uh, 
It's like, you know, you're playing chess and your enemy is playing bowling. It's just, you're never going to win out by adhering to the rules of chess. That's the first thing I want to say. The second thing I want to say, it's the Christian approach. Uh, you know, Christians see, um, see perpetrators and uh, criminals even as, uh, as uh, wandering sheep, you know, someone who lost uh, touch with God. They see, Christians see criminals as victims as well. Even though they support uh, they support uh, a punishment for the criminals, but they see a criminal as a victim of corruption, uh, and that's how we should see uh, our own radicals as well. Even when they do something that we cannot support wholeheartedly, uh, we should see them as victims instead of uh, uh, instead of. Uh, instead of uh, take, turning the, our backs to them, uh, because otherwise we're never gonna uh, put uh, incentives on our side. But it's it's choosing I'm, I'm who you want. I'm using a very careful language here. Yeah, yeah I, I get it. It's And some Christians believe that, certainly. But other Christians might mm -hmm. say, no, this is, if they're criminals, they're bad people who need to be extracted from society. I've met plenty of Christians who take that but position. But it's, it's not for us to decide who is bad. I, I don't want to get into Christian argument, but it's not for people to decide who is bad and who is good. It's ultimately up to God. Uh, but uh, if we talk about politics and libertarians, the, the, major, point I'm, uh, um, the major point I'm making is... Uh, well, if we take 6th of December, and again, bringing the revolutionary revolutionary idea to libertarianism is government, like, there is, is there a social contract in the U.S. today? What do you think? I think the social contract is a complete fiction. That's why I don't generally ah, buy well, into there, it. Well, then, what is, what is your problem? What is your problem with taking over a government building that is basically illegitimate in, in the eyes of the libertarians? Well, um, the problem that I would have with any such act, it's exactly the same problem I had with the people who were looting during the BLM protests, which is... But it's no not private property. It's not private property. It's the property that's been seized by the government and built uh, using stolen money. Yeah, there's an underlying question here, which is if you treat the... Uh, the uh, Congress as is private property, or at least property that you don't have a right to go in at any at any time you feel like it. If you treat it like that, well, then I, I that's the reason I'm against it. If you treat it like property that's open, but I don't. I, but but personally, I don't. I make the strong distinguish when I uh, read my lectures in Russia between government property and private property. That's completely fair different. enough. That 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 distinction changes the analysis, right? Because the underlying who is in charge of the property is the underlying answer to the question about whether there's been a violation of the principle so yes exactly. it's more of a discussion about who's in charge of that property and, and that you know in that regard you know either you have government property that anybody can do anything and and also people were smashing windows and smashing doors and doing things like that and so if that's a violation of private property then i would be against it if they're entitled legally entitled to to go across that property and it's not trespassing then of course nothing was done wrong well, but that brings us back to the uh, events of 6th of January because there was no private property involved. It was government property. Well, okay. Look, we're both in favor, I think, of, de <laughs> of de devolving public property down to private property in as many instances or if not all instances. So we don't have these kinds of problems. So it's very clear on who so the you, owner But is. you just supported my argument that what happened on the 6th of January uh, deserves a libertarian support wholeheartedly because it was attacked. I, I said it depends <laughs> on how you characterize the property. And I, I don't go along with the view that 
Uh, all government property should be open 24-7, 365 to anybody to smash windows and go in and do anything they want at any time. I, I don't think that's the proper definition of government property. I instead prefer to say, okay, if the government is the owner, then the government controls the property. The government can say it's closed at this time, and then it's a trespass like anything else. And I think that that rule well, probably... That, 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 if we found our point of disagreement, I think I politically understand why the government uh, protects uh, what it it's, calls its property. Uh, and I think we should take this into account politically. Uh, but I don't think there should be any moral argument made in defense of government property. And that's our point of disagreement. So anybody who wants to say, for example, wander into a nuclear facility and uh, imagining that they, they could put their finger on the button or whatever and say, Lito, look, this is public property, and as a private citizen in this country, uh, I should be able to do anything that I want. And, you know, I've decided it might be fun to launch one of these things. Uh, do you have any issue with that? And if so, why? No, but again, you're mixing the two together. You're mixing politics and you're missing ideology. Uh, we should advance, the. Fr uh, we should always think politically when we think about this sort of thing. So yes, when it happens on the nuclear uh, plant, my reaction would be different uh, from the reaction that you get from me when we talk about you know, a House of Parliament or a Senate or whatnot. Yeah, but we need to be consistent in our philosophy, right? Either government property no, is- No, I'm consistent in my, look, I, I, can, I can remain consistent in my philosophy, but uh, take different political stand on different issues, because as I mentioned uh, earlier, and we, <coughs> and we discussed it earlier in our program, uh, is that, you know, there's the ideals are the guiding star, and you can't just uh, put them into practice and expect libertarians to, libertarianism to prevail, because that's not how politics works. You're just uh, going to create chaos, uh, and uh, the society will move in the opposite direction. Uh, so what I'm saying is that politically, those are two completely different events. And in one case, we can take one political stand, and in the, uh, in the other case, we can take a different political stand because it's politically feasible. Uh, at the same time, yes, ideologically, I agree with you, there is no difference, of course, but uh, ideology is not enough. We're not communists. We understand how politics work. Uh, we understand how real world, world work, uh, and uh, we can distinguish between uh, events that, brings, that bring uh, the world further from our goal, the goal of uh, personal freedom uh, from the events that brings us closer uh, to the world uh, where individual freedoms are protected. So yeah, different political stance, but ideology, ideologically, I agree with you. Of course. Yeah, so sounds like we're trying to get to the right place. We may have some discussions on means, which means we should use to get there. And, and maybe these are small disagreements. I don't know. I, I don't get into the weeds on those types of things as much as possible. I like to first establish that we're in agreement on the ideology. We're in agreement on where we're trying to get to. Um, I would like to say to avoid this issue of how to treat government property, let's privatize it all and then we'll have a real owner who can make real rules and then there won't be any confusion when people smash the front door down we'll know exactly whether this is a real violation but there's no there, there is no confusion if you if you agree that the taxation is theft and you do uh, then everything that's been built using taxpayers money uh, is uh, uh, is not a private property. That's as basic of a libertarian position as it can be. Yes, but possession is also nine-tenths of the law, right? So if Andy steals something from you, I don't know that I'm justified in stealing it from Andy just because he stole it from you, right? Andy is not uh, justified to... Uh 
he doesn't call the title to the property anymore. Right, but he has a better claim than I do, and so if I take it from him, because he's in possession of it, so if I take it from him, I violate the no, but, the rule on theft. Still, but even you're though, not. But you're you're. There's but, certainly a slippery slope here because every property's been stolen and displaced, yeah. and every piece of land and every piece right. of property has all been stolen and displaced. Well, that's that's why it's again it's a philosophical. Uh, point uh that's why i adhere to the idea of a social contract and the social contract nature social nature of contract of non-aggression uh because of course you have like in my worldview and that's uh, I'm, I'm working on this revolutionary theory of libertarianism and i think it's a very potent uh is that yeah of course we have no law today uh, in a strict sense because there is no social contract we live in the state of hobson in the state of anarchy hobson state of anarchy we need to do where, this next time on uh, the show they, yeah we need to take this point okay. right here and do the next show on this issue after now that we've agreed right. on generally where we're trying to go and on the principle and all this and how you get there doesn't really matter we could talk about how you get there and i think that'll be a fun i think show. that'll be a fun show for us nerds who like the philosophical <laughs> aspect of it. but you're right and those are two that's that we should draw a clear line there because the whole point of the live and let live movement is being effective it's it's changing as many hearts and minds as we possibly can so we certainly appreciate all of your feedback regarding yep. our methodology of doing that we certainly support your method of doing it i don't care how it get how the world gets changed but um i just want it done and i want yeah. it done as soon as possible we're out of time gentlemen uh mikhail uh, leave us with uh, our, our listeners where they can find you your podcast websites anything you want to plug yeah i'm very active on twitter my uh, twitter alias i'm Svetov. my youtube channel is called svtv uh, and my uh, news outlet is called svtv as well svtv.org uh but it's unfortunately it's in russian but Check out the English shows that I had on my YouTube. They are amazing. And my talk with Hoppe is really enlightening. Check it out. Yeah, that sounds awesome. All right. Well, great conversation, gentlemen. This has been Attorney Andrew Markintel and Attorney Mark Victor. Everybody go check out liveandletlive.org for this podcast and many more. See what we're up to. Lots of exciting stuff happened. Start a chapter in your area today. Maybe we'll see a couple uh, pop up in Russia after this, <laughs> uh, hopefully. This has been Attorney Andy Markintel, Attorney Mark J. Victor, and our wonderful guest, Mikhail. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Mark. Thanks for having me. Until next time, we're the Peace Radicals. Peace! Peace.